and I call the New Testament. And when it was all being put together, it seemed to be all haphazard and, 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 and random. Because these people over here were saying their little bits and pieces and they were saying their things and, and they were reflecting on what they'd seen and heard and so on and so forth. And over the years, it seemed that it was just all haphazard and, and, and disorganized and, and, and random. But we have the gift of hindsight. And we can see as we look at the story of Jesus' birth, as we look at the story of Jesus Christ throughout the Gospels, that every single word is interlocked. Every thought is supported by other thoughts. Every word is supported by other words. And to the casual observer, what seems to be random and haphazard is actually not. It's very well organized. And these five stories, these 21 letters, and this one poem starts with the story. Hey, there's some pencils if anyone needs them. Starts with the story of a child being born in a little dingy house, a blue collar. And the animals would sleep at the front of the house so their body heat would keep the family warm. The family would sleep at the back of the house and there in the floor at the front of the house there was a little hole that had been dug or chiseled and that was known as the feed trough. You and I have seen it on Christmas cards with smiling cows and laughing sheep as the manger but it wasn't like that. And they quickly took some new straw and, and they cleaned it out as quickly as they could and they laid some new straw in the hole and they wrapped Jesus in what we call swaddling cloth. And they laid this little baby and you and I have been celebrating it as Christmas. And the story grew and the story was passed on. But you know what's interesting about the story? is when it was written down, particularly by the four authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those that recorded the actual events, where Jesus went and what he did and what he said, it's interesting because the language of the day was Greek. And there are two forms of Greek. There was formal Greek, and formal Greek was what politicians used to use and lawmakers and high orators and, and, and high poetry. And, and laws were, were drafted in, in what was called formal Greek, high Greek. And then there was the other kind of Greek, which was the informal Greek. It was the marketplace Greek. It was the stuff that, that family letters were written in. It, it, it was receipts were written in informal Greek. And, and, and bills were written in informal Greek. And shopping lists were written in informal Greek. And what's interesting is when you read Scripture, you find that Scripture in the New Testament is actually not written in formal Greek. It's written in informal Greek which is quite strange because in informal Greek, you would think that the story of God would be informal Greek, elite, highbrow, 
this has God come to us? Shouldn't we write it in gold lettering? No. If you have a look at the scriptures, you find that the Greek is informal Greek. Why? You take one look at Jesus Christ, it becomes obvious very quickly. Blue-collar worker, born in a little blue-collar home. And as he grew, you and I know, because we can read the Scriptures, he was just that kind of guy. He was attractive because he was the kind of guy that was just easy to get along with. He was the kind of guy that worked hard. He was the kind of guy, he wasn't a senator, he wasn't a, 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 an earthly king, he was just a tecton. He was a guy who was a carpenter and stonemason. That's all he was. He didn't have any blue ribbon, he didn't have any laugh lines around his pockets or a gold tooth display. He was just an ordinary guy. He was the kind of guy that you would find in the marketplace, in the kitchen, in the car park. The story of Jesus Christ is the story of God, listen to me, the story of God coming down to us. Unlike what major religions of the earth teach, which is the attempt of us to come up to God in the hope that we will, will gain some kind of favour from God and if we're good enough, the gods will smile on us. But this particular story, this story of Christmas, this story of Jesus Christ being born as a baby, is the story of God coming down to us, not us having to go up to God and then trying to be good enough to qualify. The story of Jesus Christ is impressive. God amongst. It's God with us. And because the story is so impressive, the problem is because this has God come down to us, wow, that blows your mind. Because of that, we can descend into becoming an enthusiastic fan and be impressed by the story. And at times, generate such an emotional state that we actually do something. The Gospel writers wrote their story in such a way, particularly Luke, to ensure that we would not become just fans of Jesus Christ and have inspired moments where we may do something because he's a hero. The life of Jesus Christ according to the Gospels, particularly Luke, does not end with Jesus Christ. Listen to me. Does not end in Jesus Christ. It continues in the lives of those that believe in the story. 
It is God working through the lives of those that are committed and dedicated to the story of a baby who was born, lived, died, and was resurrected and promises to come back again. The story of God is an old story, but it lives on. It did not die when Jesus Christ died. It lives on through us. I want you to go to Luke and the second chapter just very briefly with me this morning. I haven't got it up on the screen. So if you don't have it, I'll read it for you. <clears throat> Starts off by saying this. It's the story of quite an obscure old fella and a, an old lady. And probably many of you have heard of uh, these two characters. But let me just remind you of who and what they are. When the eighth day arrived, the day of circumcision, the child was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. You see... When a child was born, a male was born, there were three ancient ceremonies that had to take place. Number one, on the eighth day after the birth, the child would be taken to the temple and the priest would circumcise the male child. And on that day, that very hour, his official name would be recorded. And in this instance, his name was Jesus. Strange name. When your dad's name is Jacob and you've got no uncles, no grandfather, no one named Jesus because the Lord named him Jesus. Second thing, purification. Ladies, sorry. Childbirth meant you're unclean for 40 days. Because of that, you had to go to the temple and go through what was called the rite of purification. You would have to sacrifice and make atonement in order to be cleansed from childbirth. Point number three, any firstborn child, boy, sorry, and beast as well, but let's just talk boy. You had to go through the ceremony of the redemption, this is what they used to call it, still do, redemption of the firstborn. And the redemption of the firstborn, which is the, the, the third ancient ceremony, meant that you would present the child because the child who's been given to you, and it's a boy, is sacred to God. And in order for you to ceremoniously and symbolically gain the child back into the home so you could raise the child, you had to perform what was called the redemption of the firstborn, which means that you had to go to the temple and you had to pay a temple fee in order to get your child back. It was a fee of five shekels. Not much. And you would pay that fee and symbolically they would give you the child back and it was called the redemption of the firstborn. And Jesus Christ was subjected to three of the ancient ceremonies because Jesus Christ is a baby that can identify with the person that you used to be as a baby and you used to be as a young person and you are as an adult. 
the story goes on. And when the days stipulated for Moses for purification were complete, they took him up to Jerusalem to offer him to God as commanded in God's law. We've just talked about that. Every male who opens the womb shall be a holy offering to God and also to sacrifice a pair of doves and two young pigeons prescribed by God's law. In Jerusalem at the time there was a man, Simeon by name, a good man, a man who lived in prayerful expectancy for help for Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit had shown him that he would see the Messiah of God before he died. Led by the Spirit, he entered the temple. As the parents of the child Jesus took him to him uh, in to carry out the rituals of the law, Simeon took him in his arms and he blessed God. And there we have, Simeon says something to the parents and he addresses the very God in heaven. But the interesting thing is this, that Simeon, who was also a Jew, and there was not one Jew that did not believe that they were the chosen nation. And to be the chosen nation, they were supposed to be the nation that would be the all-ruling power. They all agreed to that. They all still adhere to that. But they all came to the realization that through human means, it would never happen. There would never, there would never be a time or a place where the Jewish nation would again reach the ascendancy that it so deserved. So there were some that believed that in some time in the future, there would be a champion that would be born and he would lead the nation to ascendancy. Some others believed, no, 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 there'll be another king like King David. Another King David type person will be born and he will lead our nation to the ascendancy and put us in the place where we deserve. And still others believe that God himself would come and enter into their history and restore them to the rightful place. And Simeon was one of those, according to Scripture, he didn't look for an army with swords and shields. He didn't look for a champion or a rebel rouser or a revolutionist. Someone skilled with a sword or a bazooka or a helicopter. It says that Simeon, just day by day, went by the temple worshipping and praying. He was known as the quiet in the land, that was the name of people like Simeon. It's a Greek phrase and it comes from, he waited expectantly. In Greek it means, he actually, here it comes, the direct translation, to wait expectantly, it actually means this. If you're to translate into English, um, the direct transliteration is to stand on tiptoe. That's what it means. Now I know what that's like. He had been waiting year after year after year and he was waiting with expectancy. He was standing on tiptoes, waiting in hope for this Messiah, for God to bust into our history. And I know what it's like. When Jesus, oh, sorry, when Linda started with child, Courtney, I had to wait. I had to wait with expectancy. And waiting is good because as we wait, as the mother waits, 
she doesn't diminish, does she? She increases. And then that day came and the baby was put in the crib behind the glass with all the other babies. And there I stood with a couple of other dads on tiptoe. Which one's mine? And the nurse said, that one there. And I went, really? That one? And then the mother came in. It was an Asian mother, picked up the baby. I said, no, not that one. The one behind. Oh, okay. I was going to have words when I got home. But Simeon, the quiet in the land, waiting in hope with expectancy, looking on tiptoes. And the record continues and says this. God, you can now release your servant, release me in peace as you promised. With my own eyes, I've seen your salvation. And now, it's now out in the open for everyone to see. God revealing light to the non-Jewish nations and glory of your people of Israel. And it comes down and it says this in verse 36. Anna the prophetess was also there, a daughter. She was now very old. Look at this. She was now a very old woman. She had been married seven years and a widow for 84 This bird was 84 years of age. And here she is in the temple. Why? Because, listen, she never left the temple area, worshipping night and day with her fastings and prayers. At the very time Simeon was praying, she showed up, broke into an anthem, praised to God, and talked about the child to all who were waiting expectantly for the freeing of Jerusalem. There's that term again. Waiting expectantly, waiting, looking on tiptoes. She was also a quiet of the land. At 84, Anna never ceased in a hope that God would do something about the mess as recorded on the TVs and the newspapers. At 84 years of age, she was found in the temple. She was found praying and worshipping day after day. She was the quiet in the land. Two people. Interesting, another sermon. But when you go on and you read about another two people that held some money back from God at some stage and they both dragged them out of the temple because they were dead, Another story. But these two people, Simeon and Anna, they're hoping. Hoping on tiptoes. Waiting in quiet expectation. Listen to me. Their hope never dulled. This lady was 84. She'd been married for seven years. And then for the rest of her life, she'd been a widow. Tough. Really hard. There was no social security back in those days. If you're a widow, you had to have a family that looked after you. You did it really tough. And she'd done it tough year after year after year. And that sorrow that she had felt could have turned her into a bitter woman or it could have turned her into a more uh, empathetic woman and compassionate woman. Because that's what sorrow can do. That's what hardship can do. And for Anna, she was waiting with expectancy for the Messiah to come. She was the quiet of the land and her sorrow 
actually began to build and boil within her soul to the point where she was known as the quiet in the land. I know it's coming. I hope it's soon. I hope I see it before I die. Both Anna and Simeon waited in the temple day after day after day, waiting for what we call the hope of the world. Um, I had a couple of slides. I had a couple of slides. I don't know what the first one was. Can we have a look? Next one. Oh yeah. <coughs> Matthew one. <coughs> you ever uh, picked up your Bible and read Matthew chapter one? First part of Matthew chapter one. Exciting, isn't it? Real good, eh? It's the story of Jesus' mothers. There's five of them. They're mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Watch. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Judah and his brothers, Judah and Perez and Zerah, the mother of Tamar. Tamar, oh, read her, but not here. Perez had Hezron, Hezron had Amram, Amram, Amram had Aminadab, Aminadab had Nashon, Nashon had Salmon, Salmon had Boaz, the mother of Rahab, she was a prostitute, Boaz had Obed, Ruth was his mother, Ruth was a Moabite, Obed had Jesse, Jesse had David and David became king, David had Solomon, Uriah's wife was his mother, David had an affair, Filthy beggar. Solomon had Rehoboam. Rehoboam had Abijah. Abijah had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat. <laughs> Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat had Joram. Joram had Isaiah. Isaiah had Jotham. Jotham had Ahaz. Ahaz had Hezekiah. Hezekiah had Manasseh. Manasseh had Ammon. Ammon had Josiah. Josiah had Jehoiakim and his brothers. And then the people were taken to the Babylonian exile. When the Babylonian exile ended, uh, Jehoiakim had uh, Sheltiel, Sheltiel had Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel had Abuad, Abuad had Elkiakim, no, Eliakim, sorry, Eliakim had Azor, Azor had Zadok, Zadok had Achim, Achim had uh, Eliad, Eliad had Eleazar, Eleazar had Matan, Matan had Jacob, and Jacob had Joseph, Mary's husband, and Mary gave birth to Jesus. That's the story of Jesus' family. Pretty exciting stuff. Mentions five women at a time when, sorry ladies, but you didn't mention women in a genealogy. And if you did, you made sure it was a queen or a hotshot, not a prostitute, not an adulteress. You didn't name the warts in your family. But here we have the names of some women in Jesus' genealogy. And these women are less than savory. Then why would Matthew begin his story of Jesus Christ, God coming to us with a genealogy like that, and Luke does as well. Why, why would he do that? Because next week, Christmas 
is not the story of a birth. It's more than that. You ready for it? Christmas is the story of an arrival. Christmas is the story of a coming. Christmas is less the story of a baby that you see on the front of a Christmas card and Christmas is more the story of a God who's been in the plan, in the pipeline, in the network for generations and millennia and forever. God had it designed. We first read about it in Genesis 3.15 when God says, Devil, I'm after you. But even before that, God the Father, God the Son and God Holy Spirit had this plan together that one day He would break into our history. And this is a story less about the birth of Jesus Christ. It is the story about the coming of a Messiah. That's good news. Next slide. Let me just repeat a little something. Oh, my goodness. Let me just repeat a little something. I'm going to leave you to have a little talk for one minute, two minutes. The birth record of Jesus Christ is a story of God coming to us. It's not just, hey, I have an idea. It was something that was planned from even before time began. I can't get my head around it and don't you, so, and neither can you. So, But in light of the story of Matthew 1 and Luke, the genealogy, and knowing that if the gospel writers, what they write is true, and I believe it to be true, If Jesus Christ comes at Christmas time, he didn't come on the 25th of December, but that's another story. If he comes at Christmas time, and it's really the story of God coming to us, it's the story of a fulfillment of a plan, then this, what I want you to do, a minute or so among yourselves. As culture sees it, how would you arrange that? As God sees it, how would you arrange the three words? Simple. As culture sees it, when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to a relationship with this baby that was born, that busted into our history, how would culture put those three? What order would culture put those three words in? Second question. What order do you think God wants us to put those three words in? I'll give you a minute. When it comes to church, 
or culture. How would the words be organized and arranged? How do you think God would arrange those words for us? Okay, the trap that culture often sees with this whole Christianity thing and the trap that many churches sell to those that are interested in this story of Jesus Christ. I don't know what you came up with, this is what I come up with. Often, this is how people feel. When you behave and you believe, then you can belong. Or you may have, oh, I believe. Oh, good. Now, when you behave, you can belong. I'd like to submit to the court this morning that God, I think would lean more to this direction. You belong. Let's work on belief and behaviour. Anyone going to throw a stone? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever... Oh, you belong... You may not even know it yet, oh, but you belong to the family of God. Work on that whole belief and behaviour that comes from that. Next slide. You see the difference. Good news, good advice. The birth of Jesus Christ, the hope of eternity. What is it? Discuss it in the next 30 seconds, one minute. What's the difference? Good advice? Is it good news? Now you say, oh, I know what the answer is. It's good news because it says it in the Bible. It's good news. So that's the answer he's chosen. Discuss it. The story of Jesus Christ born. Is it good news? Is it good advice? What's the difference? Let me finish up real quick. Now, what you came up with, but I want to share a couple of points with you. Advice is sound counsel. Advice is usually that counsel that demands that you do something. 
News is a report on something that's already happened. Advice urges you to do something to make something happen. News, on the other hand, is telling you about something that has already happened and you to respond to it. Advice says it's up to you to act. News says that someone else has already acted. You see, the texts about the Christmas account, the hope of the world, are texts that relate a historical event that actually happened. Our calendars testify to it every single day. You see, the coming of Jesus Christ is not just good advice. Like other religions will give good advice. This is what you must do. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ, born as a baby, is good news. It's not like an Allsop fable. You know those fables, once upon a time, and everything sort of ends well? You know why they're so popular? Because they scratch an itch inside us all. There is a desire for us to be, to be saved from the dragon and, and for the noble prince to kiss me on the cheek and wake me up. That's why Sleeping Beauty and Black Beauty and, and King Arthur and all these fables are so popular because inside these fables there is an element of truth that you can identify with because you do want the noble to come and rescue and save the day. Here in Scripture, we have a noble that comes to save the day from the evil sorcerer. The evil sorcerer casts his spell and we're all under it. And the story of Jesus Christ is about the noble king that comes to deal with the sorcerer who's evil and casts his spell upon us. The story of Jesus Christ is about deliverance. The story about Jesus Christ is about a march forward, a living of Jesus' life continuing in his church and those that love him. There's no moral to the story. Like in a fable or a legend, the narrative simply is this. The narrative is simply this. It's not what we should do. That's what God has done. He's moved into the neighborhood. He's taken on the opposition. He's waging war on the enemy. The gospel changes how we read other stories. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are right. Then the evil sorcerer has met his match and more so. And I finish with this. 
we continue to live in hope. And as we wait with the pregnancy of expectancy, may we wait on tiptoes. Because let me remind you of this, God's time is not like your and my time. God's timing is not our timing. But know this, he'll always keep his promise. History tells us, and the sacred record tells us, that there would be a Messiah that would be born. And it came to pass. The Bible tells us that Joseph was thrown in prison. What for? I didn't do anything wrong. Maybe the Lord will come and do something. But he didn't. But he did finally. But he had to wait. And when he did, what happened to Joseph was beyond his expectancy. You talk to Jairus and his daughter who's dead, Mark 5. Joseph is in Genesis 50. In Mark 5, we have a story of Jairus. He says, Lord, come, my daughter's sick, but if you come, perhaps you can heal her. And Jesus waits, and he waits, and he waits, and the next message is, forget it, she's dead. Oh, Lord, bad timing. But you know the end of the story. Jesus goes, that's cool, she's asleep, I'll go wake her up. What happens is beyond the expectation. And after 400 years, before Jesus was born, 400 years, the time of the Maccabees, when, when, when God seemed to be silent, there's nothing about him in history, and the Jews are thinking, man, why is God so quiet? Why has God not honored his promise? And then the promise comes, the birth of the Messiah, as recorded in Matthew and in Luke, we read that after 400 years of seemingly silence from God, the Messiah is born. God seems to forget his promises, but let me share this with you. He comes through in ways that you'll never dream of. Ephesians 3.20 says you have no idea, no concept of what God wants to do in your life. Maybe you ain't got pockets big enough. That's what Ephesians 3.20 says. Christmas is not another once upon a time story. Christmas is about a God who broke into the world to save us. Christmas reminds us of the hope that we can have in the return of a saviour. Ladies and gentlemen, today a saviour is born. Merry Christmas. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you you love us so much that you came into our neighborhood. You sent your son. It's not just another story. He didn't come to give us advice on how to live better lives. It's more than that. 
came to do something for us. And that was to take on the enemy and defeat the enemy. And that he did. And Lord, we thank you for it. And Lord, we also continue to live in the hope that Jesus will return soon. It's in your scripture. Lord, we don't like to wait. But while we wait, what happens to us while we wait is just as important as what we're waiting for. What you do within us while we wait is just as important as what we're waiting for. Lord, I want to thank you that you've promised to send Jesus back to come and get us. Can't wait for that day, Lord. Thank you for leading us through another year. May we continue to live in that hope and live our lives according to that hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.